Welcome to Why the Long Face, two old friends lifting the lid on mental health over a beer with author and psychiatrist Paul Keedwell and business consultant and so-called comedian Ollie Turnbull. And we're recording, Oliver. I think we need to welcome people to our latest podcast. That's a fantastic idea. Uh, episode, where are we Seven. now? Seventh episode of season two. Aren't we? Yep. Yeah. And uh, oh, time flies. Yeah, when you're having to do something. It's having fun. No, I've <laughs> Welcome this back, season everyone. very much. Very yeah, much. Yeah, it's a nice varied season, isn't it? Yeah, we've got all sorts and of things. And thanks, everyone, for your, for your suggestions. Keep them coming. Yeah, we'll do pretty much anything. Yeah. We haven't even thought of a theme for season three. No. Anyway. We'll just carry on in a rambling way, I think. Do it. Yeah. That's been pretty popular so far. Well, it's been... It's increasing, so no, increasingly popular, yeah, we right? We are getting a little bit of We're a, getting some traction now. We're getting traction. We're getting a rise Thanks in listeners, and we, we, we appreciate that. Yeah. You can help us even more by subscribing, commenting, and liking. Yes. But we'll we'll remind you about that later. So yeah. uh, what's the what's the subject uh, this week? Uh, so we uh, are doing... Doctor, Doctor? Uh, so, so we are talking about... So this is a subject close to my heart, actually, because I wrote a book on this. Well, on this is, well, no, this subject was contained within it, which was about how we optimise our built environment uh, to facilitate mental well-being. And right? just to, because you're far too um, shy to mention it, the book is called Headspace, Colon, The Psychology of City Living by Dr. Paul Keedwell, available from all average to low-end bookshops. <laughs> so, so unfair. And online. Uh, you can um, buy it from Amazon, where it's selling like the proverbial... Mm, tepid... Tepid cakes. Cakes, yeah. Um, anyway, so... Uh, the, it's a good day. It's very good. The, it's all right. Yeah, yeah. it's okay. Well, Monocle liked it. They said who? it was a brilliant book. Who said this? Monocle. No way! Yeah, you don't know who they are, do no, you? No, no, no. <laughs> They're a very trend-setting uh, magazine, yes. Well, Monocle. Monocle, what do they say? What was the actual quote? Uh, As if you can't remember This it, brilliant word word. book by Paul Kidwell, something like that. Wow! Anyway, let's move on. No, and talk about, good, that. Let's talk about uh, the subject, which is biophilia and uh, how uh, exposure to nature improves our mental well-being. Biophilia. So literally, bio... Well, biology. That's the biological bit. That's nature. And philia? Attraction to or love of, I suppose. So biophilia... Is attraction to nature, but it's the biophilia hypothesis is that we have an innate attraction to nature. That's the BET, and I guess it all comes from. It's all part of this evolutionary psychology type um, trend, which is I quite like. I'm quite interested in. So the theory goes because uh, in our ancestral environment. Uh, for example, a flower gave way to a fruit. We were inherently attracted to the beauty of that flower, not for its own sake, but also because it had the promise of sustenance. That's the sort of basis of the theory. Got it. Is that sort of explain why? It was a question I had for later, but I'll ask it now. Is that a, a flower looks beautiful to us, but you can't really put your finger on why. It just, a rose, yeah. even a carnation, a lily, one of my favourites. They just look beautiful and elegant and mm. nice and mm. it, it could sort of explain that it could yeah well, probably wherever flowers grow there's likely to be water as well right uh, which is in important well vital 
yes. for our survival. <laughs> Absolutely. Right. Things, things uh, you learnt first. Water itself, water. water itself is innately attractive. Waterfalls, beautiful. Uh, we a rippling pool. Well, you've only got to look at the the stats on how many trips hu- us humans make to the seaside or yeah. to lakes or to rivers pools for recreation. S- pools of sweat, uh, dribbling down the biceps of a well-toned boxer as he works out and pummels that heavy bag. It's quite homoerotic. Yeah, yeah, I guess. Can I take a minute? Yeah. Um, so, who's this geezer, Edward O. Wilson? Have you heard of him? Yeah, he's just some geezer who came yeah. up with the biophilia hypothesis. In 1984, and he defines biophilia as, I like this, the urge to affiliate with other forms of life. Mm. Mm. Nice. Like it. Yeah, yeah. But oh. so, so attraction to other living things, an innate attraction to other living things. And so that's way of presumably it. animal and vegetable, but not necessarily mineral. Correct. And the thing is, it's not necessary to all types of nature, of course. We're a little bit averse to any natural predators or dangers in the landscape, right? Right. Which is understandable, because his theory, I think, would pay homage to Darwin and natural selection and why we're attracted to certain things innately. Homage, they were homage. homage. Um, I know a lot of people say homage. Do they? Yeah. Yeah, I know. You said homage, like a... Oh. Big... Uh, Jesse. <coughs> okay, moving on. All right, fine. Um, being like that. Uh, mm. You just give me a lovely rice supper as well, and I'm being nasty. No, it's fine. What kind of person I'm I am? Tomato, tomato. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay. You're supposed to be leading this. Yes, I know. I, I don't know. think you're totally convinced, though, are you? Um, but I'm I think getting there. I'm okay, getting there. so you but kind of. The other thing yeah. is, you look at a beautiful sunset or a beautiful ocean, that ain't living. But you do feel an affiliation, an affinity, and a, a sense of awe and beauty towards yes. that thing. Is that different? Yes, I, th- I think so. I think that, uh, you know, that Mr. Wilson is not necessarily central to our argument. That is, that um, having exposure to na- natural environments is necessary to maintain or promote mental health. Right. And... There's, there seems to be two things. One is just appreciating it aesthetically, and the other is wanting to be part of it, wanting to roll around on a in a green meadow, or for example, or wanting to pet a pet uh, a baby lamb. What are they called? Lambs. <laughs> I really have written up, read it well on this one. Um, is that two different things? One is saying uh, that the, the the sight of a cheetah right. running in the tundra is that where they run? No idea. Is a magnificent sight as opposed to I want to run through a wheat field. It run on the plain, oh, or right. a, the savannah. Probably. Yeah, savannah and sounds the tundra, right. The tundra isn't tundra snow. Yeah, that that's frozen soil, isn't it? Tundra. There's no way you get a cheetah on frozen soil. No, I don't think you're going to get it anywhere close. No, savannah sounds a bit Probably better. Help. But isn't that it's just grass? Snow leopard, maybe. Possibly, snow leopard on the savannah. Anyway, let's get to the point, which is that appreciating um, nature or being of nature is my question. Uh, right. Um, we are we are part of the biosphere, I guess, aren't we? So we're going to appreciate it as much as anyone else. But we're going to feel more at home and more uh, aligned with nature than we are necessarily a concrete uh, urban environment, which is something that's come about very recently. And we're not, in, I suppose the argument goes, we're not adapted to thrive in that sort of rather austere environment or sterile it's sort of functional i guess you'd say you're right right so right. A block of flats in terms of an efficient way of housing a load of people safely with amenities they need right ticks every box yeah but in terms of satisfying bio 
God, is it by? Well, high-rise living um, satisfied people's basic needs uh, in, in the sort of times when a lot of our housing was in disrepair and didn't have proper sanitation, proper heating, mm. and proper cooking facilities, and so on and so forth. It was a quick, um, probably cost-effective, um, well, definitely cost-effective solution yeah. but to time, our basic physical needs, but it ignored our, uh, arguably, our mental biophilic needs. needs because at the time it must have felt like a miracle we can house people who've been in i don't know back-to-back terrace houses in these houses in the sky they'll be they'll be clean they'll be safe they'll have you know water electricity yeah. and heating it's a miracle and mm. but like you say it mm. ignores the fact that actually it it, it it takes away a sense of community and it takes away even being even the slightest bit closer to nature yeah yeah unless you're lucky and you've got uh, the view from your apartment block is rolling hills which is like it's likely not to be it's likely to be mm. view of another block mm. yeah. <laughs> in front of you. <laughs> or a cityscape so from well, a utility perspective very good from a mental health perspective maybe not because i think you're so implying good. that unless we have some things going on in our lives which satisfy our biophilic urges that can lead to i don't know what is it is it stress so it all it all it? um it all comes back well let's just say that um, it has an unconscious, slow, grindy influence on our mental health, which could lead to anxiety, depression, and so on. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, you've got... So there's a whole wealth of evidence uh, that has, has arisen. Uh, and I guess this is... It's, it's a huge amount to cover in one episode. Uh, but environmental psychology, or even you could say architectural psychology. So how... all What experiments, what evidence of has been amassed to support the idea that we need to have contact with nature to feel better. Right. And it all goes back really to, I suppose, the, the pioneers of the pioneers of environmental psychology were Roger Ulrich and Rachel Kaplan in the 1980s, who uh, were based in the UK, actually. And... I, environmental psychology has sort of died off in the late 90s but continues to take off in the states and it's only now that it's sort of come on trend again i think it was very untrendy um and a bit mocked. during the noughties and a bit, a bit, a mocked. bit mocked really Possibly it was summed unfair. up as uh you just need to go just go to the allotment do a bit of gardening and you'll feel better <laughs> yeah, yeah um but yeah the the ascent the essential Evidence that they amassed was, um, well, for, to give two examples to kick us off, Roger Ulrich did a systematic study of the rates of recovery of people post-surgery in hospitals, um, depending on where their bed was situated, whether it was situated next to a window looking out onto trees and nature, or whether it was um, facing onto a wall. Physical that recovery was a or mental recovery? Physical. Right. Wow. <clears throat> so physical recovery, so they needed less pain relief, and they had fewer complications in the surgery, and they tended to have a, a shorter length of stay. So that was a sort of fairly br- groundbreaking study. Mm. And, and the implication being that the the your mental your, your mental health or your the calming effect of nature mm. speeded your recovery. And that's just being so able psych- to look at it. Psychosomatic effect, basically, right. of nature. And this again was around the time that Rachel Kaplan was saying that. We suffer in the modern urban world, sensory overload, 
We've got everything bombarding us, basically. And when we go into nature, it's restorative. They did a number of studies to show that um, it had an immediate calming effect on us to mm. to be in, an, uh, in a green environment. Mm. And also, if we were... Uh, and and not only that, but if we were then in uh, made to do some gardening, um, which may not be everyone's instinctive cup Definitely. of tea, right? Definitely so not. if you're a white collar IT executive, no one's going to get you down. Put a spade and a fork in your hand and say. <laughs> but but actually, if you did because it's awful. You'd find that you'd uh, your blood pressure would go down, your stress hormones would. Would, would go down. I'd be pissed off. And uh, initially, maybe. Weeding. Weeding. <laughs> Can there be anything worse in the As world? As you said, but mo- mostly Weeding. it's about the calming effects of nature, which are innate, which ties in with the biophilia thing. But she's also saying that there's something very therapeutic about the you s- sowing the seed, nurturing the seed, <laughs> seeing the plant grow. Okay. No, but actually the creative element of it. You're no, creating that. You're creating that. something, yeah. and that feeds back in a very positive way. Um, so that I guess that's the basis of a lot of the research that's come from then. Really, so it's all built around that general idea. So in the in the way that we think about designing our public play spaces uh, for kids, uh, the way we think about um, greening up our cities. Mm. Um, that's that little space perhaps between the pavement and the road could be planted with bush, with shrubs or mm. you could have that central reservation you could start plant some stuff in there stick a squirrel in there stick a squirrel in there um, well, but, well, one thing though before you go on and I'm assuming go on about on and on and on <laughs> water features <laughs> I, I don't even get me started on water features there's so much to say on that but they're not living. Or waterside living. They're not living, though, water features. That's, that's no, no, get off that. Okay. We're talking about nature. Oh, right. Well, we did say bio In general. Living. Okay, that's good. So bio doesn't actually just mean living. It means no, but, it, but but actually the presence of water infers life. Ah, uh, okay. No, so that's that why that. it has that instinctive, uh, that's the theory. It has that. In, we don't know, but it, the studies show that you that people instinctively prefer landscapes with water in them mm. they do just, they just, always prefer they always choose that landscape over one that doesn't just go back to what Kaplan was saying unless there's too much water sorry <laughs> quick caveat if there's only a no seriously really? if there's only a tiny bit of land and mostly water yeah. people don't like it really as much actually as they still prefer it to a completely concrete space urban space but they don't like it as much as uh, as um, as a green space without any water. There's a hierarchy. Oh, I love. There's it. a hierarchy. You know me in a hierarchy, right? So gotta love the hierarchy. Right at the top. Okay, got, let's hear it. Right at the top, you've got a green landscape with some water in it, right? <laughs> and then the less, <laughs> then you've got a green a green landscape without water, and right. then you've got the urban concrete yeah. jungle. And where does too much water fit into this? So the more green you add to the concrete jungle, the, the more pleasant it is. Mm. And then if you add a bit of water mm. to the green, so it's even more desirable. But then <laughs> if it's too much water, you're going right back down again. Like the Uncanny Valley. but it's I think watery. it's about threat of drowning or something like that. It's just, oh, we're overwhelmed by a massive yeah, yeah. Uh, amount of water. What happens if you stick a sheep in it or a nice piece It reminds horse. you of being flooded. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> or what marooned. Else? Or a kitten. Whatever you stick a horse in it. Better, worse, uh, better. A couple of horses, better than one. Two horses and a goat, uh, even better, I reckon. Unless you're feeling crowded out oh, by yeah. this stage, and then some freaky. Depends. Animals. Depends if you've got one in the foreground, one in the background. 
Well, what about you sticking some freak animal like a platypus? If you've got a horse's nose right in your face, I reckon that's going <laughs> to... And where does the platypus... You know it's like where na- does the platypus? nature's fine as... Na- nature's fine as the platypus. The platypus. We love the platypus. <laughs> you love the platypus? There's no threat there from the platypus. Yeah, a platypus. What a platypus? Green, Why? Too much water and a platypus. I know. Platypus, look platypus look weird. Yeah, but it's more comic than no. threatening. No. Yeah, that's true. The way they walk, those little fellas. Those little buggers, they try to walk along with their massive feet. Right, so this chap, Roger Ulrich, okay, he didn't just stop at hospital beds. He did a whole load of research onto what sort of landscapes we find attractive, right? We've talked about the hierarchy of the water and all that. Interestingly, with that, you only need a tiny bit of water. Like it's a water fountain or something to be like, yeah, it's much more calmed by a scene. It's amazing. You know what? Look, it does make a lot of sense, put little water fountains in every... In concrete housing estate. Put like a water fountain in your estate. <laughs> you know, stick my face in one right now, wouldn't you? Right. But it doesn't make actual sense, right? The trickling of water is quite nice. And of course, it might play back to our natural sense of... Need uh, to pee. <laughs> Need to urinate. Trickling water. It doesn't have to trickle. <laughs> Don't say there's another hierarchy. Actually, but we would prefer running water, though. Actually, right, because it's fresh. Or C, moving water is complex and fresh. interesting. Oh no, it's fresh though. Think about and it. And it's fresh. Our primitive brains Ooh. think that's fresh water. Yes. Rather than um, water that a hippo is shattered. I love the fact you're getting into this now. I do love it, but I do have one crucial question. Crucial question is that Rachel Kaplan and the other gentleman, they seem. Rog. Rog seem to be looking at the effect of seeing nature rather than being part of ah. nature. And I'm or immersed in it, you mean? Exactly, immersed in it, milking a cat. Right. No, but the thing is that people have done research into that. I'm saying that they were the early pioneers. Ah, okay. We take um, city dwellers uh, for a walk in a in an urban forest, for example, mm. has a huge impact on their mm. on their sense of. Um, well, there's lots of things that nature does does to you. It doesn't just calm you down. It actually inspires you to come up with answers to things. It helps you put things in perspective. It's a, it's a place of contemplation. And that goes right back to the old uh, Native American um, idea of the vision quest, which usually occurs at difficult transitions in your life. It could mm. be the loss of someone. It could be uh, a rite of passage type thing where you, you're about to become an adult for the first time mm. or you're about to marry for the first time. Probably baby comes along. Um, or baby comes along. Right. And, you, send, and you, you sort of go out into the wilderness for three days and you oh. commune with nature and you come back supposedly with greater insights that you then impart to the rest of the community but i you know there's this there's something to this there's always that danger that's tipping into a kind of hippie nonsense right well it's easy, easy to ridicule but there is some um, a, a link between being in that kind of natural environment immersed in it and an increase in creative potential do you think say. it's because if you're wandering through a cityscape like I, when i walk through manhattan for example or even um uh, parts of the city of London, I'm yeah. kind of overwhelmed by the unnatural uh, proportions of the buildings. I think that's like. what they're saying, and I think that can freak you out. Whereas, of course, in your wood, you're in a place of natural proportions. Trees yes. are big. Yeah, lichens stick onto them. Animals are stirring yeah. around at the right scale, a natural scale, if you will. Yeah, like that. The, but the whole thing about cityscape, which you want, a makes it interesting. <clears throat> two, utilitarian. But three, a bit 
freaky outy because those buildings are too big. I remember walking through one of those gorges in the great big uh, down Fifth Avenue or whatever in New York. Mm. I'm looking at these buildings and I, I, I feel a sense of uh, obviously inf- inferiority, very unlike me, uh, and also the fact that the scale's all wrong. And I'm just a little ant with these massive boxes. And, and Rachel Kaplan would say, not, it's not just that things are not of a human scale, which is intimidating. There's a lot of stuff that's designed specifically to grab your attention. Mm. And Rachel Kaplan would have said, it's all about attentional overload. You're losing the ability to reflect because of all this. And it's only when you get into into a natural environment that you're able to actually consolidate everything but that it, you're, you're being bombarded with. Yeah, but if it's overstimulation that's the issue here, why don't you just go into a flotation tank where there's zero stimulation? Why is it that nature... Well, flotation tanks work. Oh, they work very well. So you could. The answer is you should. Yeah. So going I back mean, into nature, it's not so much about it, the fact that it's nature. It's about that there's less artificial stimulus. Mm, mm, okay. I get, mm. I'll dig that. Though that for most people, going into a flotation tank is a, a not a practical solution on a regular basis for overcoming your stress. So, you well, know, other things might make more sense. Yeah, yeah. Like deciding to live near a park, like like deciding to live near the sea. Mm. But um, people do that. I'm going to go for a walk to clear my head. Or they go for I'm a walk. I'm going to go for a walk on the beach to clear head. my head. And now they this, actually say this, don't yeah. they? Yeah. Now, there's a statistic that you'll, I think particularly you will find fascinating, go which ahead. was that there were hugely increased visits to Central Park after the 9-11 disaster. I do find that fascinating. Yeah, yeah. Wow, that is absolutely fascinating. And it's so also we been naturally sh- go back to yeah. nature when we have the Twice. opportunity yeah. to. Mm. Because we when we've had enormously stressful, so there's that whole uh, other lump of literature which is about how nature buffers against stress, a stressful life event or an accumulation of stress. Mm. And people go and they instinctively seem to do that. Yeah, that's great. That's a great, um, great. There's factory. another big chunk of research on people who've recently been diagnosed with cancer mm-hmm. tend to go to natural spaces wow. wow so it's a little bit like the red indian thing yeah where a, a traumatic or, or life-changing event happens they go off mm. when really they should have probably put more work into inventing the gun um but they decided to uh, <laughs> too too soon but they decided to no I, I bow and arrow is pretty effective but not as effective as the gun let's face it it's uh, so it turns out yeah mm. it's it's interesting though I mean, how that might relate to so i th- it might relate to um therapy for people who are suffering from um anxiety type uh, illnesses presumably um is there something that can avoid drugs which makes use mm. of this biospherical biospherical mm. biospherical uh, by by a filial um tendency that we all seem to have Yes, it's in our DNA somehow, in our blueprint, that we are comforted by the natural world and other living things. Do you think this is why the Victorians would send people who had um, bad humours or whatever it was off to sanatoria yeah. in the countryside? Do you think they knew that in, in innately? That I don't know. I think they had a little bit of an obsession with fresh air. Right. I think that was more than anything else. But yeah, exposure to sun. Yeah. yeah, which is probably a good thing actually, even if it doesn't burn you. Always, you want a decent amount of vitamin D. Oh yes. Most of us London dwellers are are vitamin D deficient through the winter months. We don't check, so we don't know. But apparently, um, most of us are. It's given me a big swollen belly. My vitamin D deficiency. Yeah, it's a useful excuse as well for people who eat too much and yes. drink too much. Yes, well, it, and it, don't do any exercise. <laughs> and are fifty. <laughs> can I? Can don't I? don't eat dirty. Your age is not an excuse, man. Okay. Can I give it's, you a quote from a movie though, which which is a more of a cynical angle to this? Because okay. I think I think you're going to recognise the movie eventually. Okay. Yeah. All right. So character one 
you know what we should do? What should what should we do? You've got it already. Yeah. What's the film? <laughs> we nail an eye. Absolutely. So I says, you know what we should do? I say, I know what we should do. And he goes, how well, should I possibly know, know what, what we should do? What should we do? What should we do? Exactly. Get out for it for a while. Get into the countryside. Rejuvenate. And then the classic line comes. Shall I do it? I'm in a park and I'm practically dead. <laughs> exactly that. Rejuvenate. I'm in a park and I'm practically dead. What good's the countryside? And then they go into a discourse about how long it is till, yeah, till yeah. the pub opens. And then it's a whole kind of road movie type thing where they um, come across howling gales and rain and dodgy farmers and bulls and yeah. But you'll notice that when Withnell finds a potato, he's triumphant. Mm, mm. He's in a muddy field, pissing rain. That's true, actually. He says, I've got one. And he got a potato and also a stick, which he calls the... the, the <laughs> fuel inward situation. Fuel and wood situation, yeah. yeah. You've got to be a fan of the film. Uh, yeah. I know most, most people who watch it, I think, become fans, don't they? Yeah, but who's watched it? You seem to be thumbing through your, um, your book. No, I just was um, thinking a little bit about... I just kept looking for a particular name, which was Richard Louvre, which isn't an easy name to remember. L-O-U-V. Really? And he's a journalist who wrote a book called um, Last Child in the Woods. Oh, right. Nice. And he coined the term nature deficit disorder. Oh, here we go. In response to how we are raising our kids these days, plonking in front of a TV mm. or not restricting mm. access to smartphones and, uh, the, and iPads and the like, mm. which is leading them to be deficient uh, in their exposure to nature which he argues has led to lots of problems like attention deficit disorder, uh, anxiety and depression. He uh, thinks that they are linked. You could see it. You could certainly see it as a hypothesis. What, what's he got to back it up? Um, a whole, uh, to be fair to him, a whole book of, of evidence uh, from various studies, mm. um, all of which are probably quite small studies and, and reflect the difficulty there is in trying to do research in this area, as you can imagine. Yeah, yeah. But I think it's a hypothesis worth looking at, mm. um, especially when you, you think, well, it is actually consistent with um, other evidence that we've got that shows that kids um, prefer to play in natural environments uh, to, um, you know, constructed playgrounds. They love a ball pit, though. And the more that that... Well, they do, but the more that that, um, that constructed playground um, has uh, natural elements in it, like a water, uh, like a, a pond... The water, and, uh, always the water. with the water. <clears throat> yeah, and a, and a sand pit. Uh, it's about um, the things that the kids love most and not the miniature houses and the, 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 the horse they can rock on and stuff. It's... Mm. Uh, how can they get their hands dirty? Put some water in with that sand pit and make a sandcastle. Or... Uh, and it's boys and girls as well. Yeah, from, yeah. From how my, do I? Uh, so how do I get it, my hands dirty and actually interact yeah, with that yeah, environment? Yeah, not not things that are passive that you do. Yeah. But and strangely, um, when they're very young, so uh, when my kids were growing up, you'd, you'd, they'd love the sand pit, the boy and the girl, and all their boy and girl friends. When they're very young, it's only later. Yeah. They start to diverge, and one right. wonders whether we're doing that to them or it's an innovation. Yeah, or we're doing that to them. Exactly. Because actually, as adults, we prefer to play in nature. We like nuts and crannies, places to hide, places to explore. And that has been shown that in, in our preference for the built environment as well. We prefer facades on buildings that have some complexity. 
Uh -huh. uh, and we prefer interiors that have some complexity that actually have some mystery and places to explore and some cubby holes and things like that. Like a child. And, and in fact, if you watch children play in, in, in the average playground with, a, you know, swings and slides and things like that, mm. um, they are often seen pairing off underneath bit uh, things, underneath slides oh. or behind things. So, um, That's nice. Yeah. So I think all of that is useful for understanding how we might better design our cities going forward, but also the areas of the city that we might want to seek out more often than others. Yes. You know what I mean? You know science? Yeah, man. You're a scientist. Yeah. And I, I, I studied science at university a lot less successfully than you did, or indeed than most of the people in my I was going to say, as the majority of the population. The majority of the population, including morons, cretins, and idiots. Um, but uh, mm. I did, you know, you do have this sort of rather um, taken for granted love of the scientific method and scientific progress. And maybe we have got lost in the desire to do things which are possible at the expense of doing things which are good for our mental health. For example, the idea of uh, creating an entire city that's underground or whatever, um, mm. is it's almost like us combating nature, right. proving the human superiority. Right. The irony being that it makes the humans that are within that environment miserable. Right, so harnessing the aspects of nature that actually uh, make us feel more relaxed and more creative and more inspired. Yeah. And so actually trying to use technology to combat it by giving us all central heated, boxy houses. Mm, mm. Uh, so we've beaten nature in one sense, and then we're losing the advantages that nature give us Mentally. in another. Yeah, because in, we're, in mentally, we're exactly. divorcing ourselves from going out and getting the firewood to feed the fire. And when we yeah. do that, a more basic kind of camping mm. kind of existence, that is so rejuvenating. Have you not, have you not noticed that? 100%. I mean, it's, it's a hell of a hassle getting there. <laughs> All the kit you have to put up and in your, it's, oh, you have to you battle with your kids. But once they're there, oh, oh my God. So as you know, we go camping uh, a lot. It's like up to about 10, 15 families, each with multiple kids. Mm. And the kid, the, there's not an iPhone or iPad in sight. They're making swings, they're climbing trees, they're right. scuffing their knees and yeah. they're playing football and they're playing with fire, uh, sometimes supervised, sometimes less supervised. And they're absolutely, you can see it in them. I think one dies in the fire every year, right? We normally have a couple of fatalities. And uh, I mean, we're that's lucky. not bad. You know, it's, it's a price worth paying. <laughs> Last time we were very lucky, a single mutilation. And one all dead out of the pond. Oh, and there was some life changing injuries as well. Yeah. Okay. But the adults were fine, so it was. Good. But <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, the other place that kids love and adults too is the beach, and part of the reason for that is that well, the whole family tends to get stuck in when, when you're camping. You often see the parents sitting down on their uh, <laughs> on their asses by the tent, <laughs> the kids are running around. On the beach, they tend to get involved more, so kids love it. Yeah. That's the thing that kids love the most. Yeah. It's not just because it's, a, uh, I don't know, it, it, a, there's something about probably the sea as well and the fact that they're able to interact, as I said before, with nature. Yeah. They have to dig, they've got something they can dig with, yeah. build with, yeah. splash around in. It's like, a, it's like you're in a toy. I remember when I went to the beach the first time, so we were not near a beach, so it was an unusual thing. And it's just kind of a weird place where it's it's a toy the sand is like a toy and the sea is this massive blue movie thing and it's just kind of wondrous in a way mm. not to say disconcerting yeah. to begin with but in a nice way yeah 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 so i think the lesson from that is if we should try to make sure that we are like in this great city preserve little pockets of nature for people to go to to play in mm. 
play is a uniquely mammalian activity. Oh, it's yeah. something you do for pleasure. There is no other purpose to it. The effects, though, of play are an improvement in your motor skills, your social skills, because you you're playing with other kids and mm. you're learning mm. about cooperation. And I guess also an appreciation of nature, which, which makes you want to preserve it. One of my abiding memories of, being, uh, of growing up with my dad got some insider information about a set of badgers on Ilkley Moor. And he says, you can't tell anyone where these badgers are because I've been, t been tipped off. And we woke up at 4 a.m. one morning uh, in the summer and we took a hip flask of whiskey. I would probably only be about eight and I pretended to like my sip of whiskey when actually, of course, it was rank. And we went up to this secret place <laughs> on Ilkley Moor and hid in the bracken and laid down there for about two hours. And then these badgers came out uh, with about four cubs and they started playing at dawn with each other. Right. And I never really understood the idea that animals played. Uh -huh. I thought it was a bit weird, but it was yeah. a, a wonderful memory uh, yeah. of, of these badgers just as the sun coming up, actually playing and biting each other's ears and rolling around. And we humans will naturally start playing, it's been shown, in natural contexts more than in, in man-made ones. We no, are, we do. No, really? No, we definitely, we play, kids tend to play more in natural settings. That is absolutely true. And of the man-made playgrounds, it's the ones that are more complex and have more areas of mystery and places mm. to explore that are preferred. Yeah. And they tend to be more uh, densely popular. And as I said, with things that, that mimic nature, like water, like sand. And do, you then, remember, do you remember in the 1970s, there used to be this thing called an adventure playground because playgrounds well, have been yeah. rather sanitized in the, mm. in the 60s and they were plastic and sort of painted wood. Yeah. And then there was this, this um, much bigger, more complex, more natural wooded yeah. uh, adventure playground. The only difference was that they were bigger, more natural, and therefore you could get really nasty splinters. But it made for a better Well, I remember experience. being. I, I remember much preferring those to... The yeah, the artificial ones. Yeah, yeah me too. Um, they're even more fun than, say, going to an amusement park and roller coasters and all those artificial means of adventure. I think that you actually have a much better experience in these uh, adventure playgrounds. Yeah, because you're climbing things, you're exploring things yourself. You're not part of a of a of a ride that's been designed for you. Mm. Oh, you're making your own experience. You're making like. your own experience. And actually, it's been shown that playing in nature definitely is, is, is good for kids, good for their mental health. But it also it's been shown to generate uh, friendships and social networks because they, they tend to explore in groups. Hmm. Yeah. In that environment. Well, I'm trying to think of um, our camping trips where we've got 20, 25 children. You're absolutely right. They, they get together and in cross-gender groups as well, boys and girls mixing together. There's no sort right, of gender right. stereotypical yeah, behavior yeah. going on. Hierarchies tend to break down in that they situation. Do. They do. And different ages getting on and they become a sort of community, if you like, until they're hungry. And then they become a pain right. in the ass. Right. <laughs> right. And there are fewer dangers like traffic in that sort of environment yeah. as well. So Actually, they feel freer to, a, to explore on their own. Yeah, yeah. I made that joke about becoming a pain in the ass. But actually, do you know they're not? They're not at all. They just come back in a band and say, when's, when's supper? And sometimes you can say half an hour and they'll go, huh, okay, and then run off again. Uh, well, uh, wonderful times, wonderful times. So I remember reading about a particular architectural practice in Japan where the, uh, the, the architects, might as well give them a plug, <laughs> it's Tezuka Architects. Right. Um, they design uh, schools around trees and they have the trees growing up through the classrooms, up through the roof of the thing, and then they have... Um, 
they encourage kids to play on these trees and climb up them and they've got nets to stop them if they fall off but there's a chance they can put their heads all there is a deliberately an element of risk built in yeah a bit of rough and tumble built in that deliberately so because they need a little bit of danger did you climb trees then, when you were a youth or were your yeah, limbs too yeah feeble? and i used to i used to love forests and I used to cycle through them and stuff yeah, yeah. I used uh, to climb so high in trees. It's right, incredible. Me thing. too. Like 40, 50 feet up. Yeah. And the branches get pretty twiggy at that twiggy. level. Twiggy, yeah. And, and you, but of course we would be light as anything. Uh, and yeah. I remember looking down at the ground thinking, oh, I think I'd probably definitely die. And of course I definitely would have died if I'd fallen off. Yeah. The yeah. risk's amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's such fun though. Yeah. Being in a tree. Being in a tree. Uh, be, both you and I were lucky enough to grow up in fairly rural environments where we had that access to all that. Yeah, I remember applying... The farmer wasn't very happy, but there were loads of us used to uh, play in this massive stack of hay bales. Oh, playing in hay bales is the best, man. Great fun. Yeah. And they'd create this chute that went down through the middle of it. But you could create <laughs> dens, and dens little, and yeah. little, little places and um, little romantic misunderstandings. And I remember there was grain silo. The farmer was, wasn't happy about that either. No. And we jumped into a grain silo, for God's sake. What? Yeah. Some people have to eat biscuits made out of that. I know. Dirty feet. Uh, yeah, we didn't care. Yeah. Um, but yeah, uh, and I think adults are kids too, and I think we love to be playing out in nature. And there's some research projects going on showing that exercising in green spaces or in what they call the blue spaces, so water, water again, has a much bigger stress-busting effect than exercise alone. Yeah. And once again, there's a hierarchy. Mm. Exercising is good in itself, but then exercising in green spaces is um, better still. Well, we used to exercise on Clapham Common, didn't we? Yeah, you you're getting the added benefit good. of not just the sensory experience of nature, uh, but uh, but then the exercise as well, a kind of synergistic effect. And then yeah. and then with the blue gym, I was thinking about how much I got out of uh, surfing, even though I was an average at best surfer. God, I'd love how to much, see How that. much fun I, I got out of that and um, how addictive it was. I'd be out there for hours. Mm. Um, and I looked at this. It was quite a heartwarming study, really. War veterans with PTSD very difficult to treat these guys were part of an initiative which paid for them to go out surfing and really? uh, there was a huge improvement in sort of their symptoms and their flashbacks their anxiety their nightmares and so on which which lasted way beyond the actual surfing session itself but they go back every week yeah, right, and really? also of course they they got a, a renewed sense of that camaraderie they'd had in the war oh, so right. the two things can combine that is nice really help their ptsd and surfing of course you really are in nature because you're reliant on its you're wind, interacting with the it, waves sure. and you're, you're right. here, here is something there right i get what you're saying you freaking hippie um, yeah man no, no I'm, I'm joking let's I go to burning man <laughs> oh, although actually <laughs> there's one one thing that ulrich just determined was that we're not so keen on uh featureless arid plains and right. landscapes no, well, they'd be they'd be threatening, wouldn't they? We have to live somewhere, right? We'll have to live in houses, and houses have to have you know strong walls and roofs and stuff. So we can't be within nature. And a lot of us live in cities because cities are great and cool to live in. So what what do you do? Is this a, a pot plants? Are they the solution? Pot, pot plants. plants. Is that why people buy pot, pot plants, pot, pot which plants. are awful? Pot plants better than nothing. Really? Even having a oh. picture of a green landscape on the wall has been really? shown to have an effect yeah mm. or videos of there was one study where they um, compared feelings of, of of creativity inspiration uh calmness uh oneness with nature and so on uh, they compared the actual immersive experience in a park to the experience of being at home 
watching a projected image of this mm. scene. Mm. And it was almost as good Bloody in hell. terms of um, its effect on, yeah, stress levels. But a serious point, though. I mean, are we, as we know, pot plants are awful and, and terrible dust collectors and just green, horrible messes. But what can you do in your home? Are, are you saying really pictures of nature? Uh, uh, pictures and landscapes. Um, try the, and break the, up the angles and uh, the, the stark walls. Paint, paint a wall green. Really? Yeah, just the colour green has been shown to increase creativity in a lab-based test. Yeah, uh, remarkably. Yeah, as opposed to any other colour. Well, how do you test Or something creativity? achromatic. Um, I think their task was um, how many applications you can put to a, a can of tomatoes or something like that. Right, no, classic. Um, was classic the test. mumbo-jumbo. But you weren't allowed to use a familiar use of it or anything like that. So, But they came up with more creative solutions if they'd... Uh, first of all, being exposed to the colour green. <laughs> it's, so, quite, it's quite a stretch, but it's called the green effect. You can read right. about it. I was very sceptical, but there's something in it. Well, your this office, your office is green. The walls of this office are green. The curtains are green, mm. and uh, you kind of said, a blue green. Yeah, yeah. You yeah. haven't said a single creative thing all day. But <laughs> you know, you've done very well. It's very nice. It's very nice. Yeah. So, Doctor Keedwell, psychiatrist, where does this fit in to your um, therapeutic Parthenon? Would you ever? And this isn't trying to belittle it. Belittle I would it, anyway. be quite realistic with people who live in big cities, if you can. Try to choose a place with uh, some sort of open space where you can grow plants and so on, or where you have at least a view out onto nature. If you can't do that, just factor into your weekly schedule, going to the park, going to the local urban forest or whatever it is, and getting your dose of nature and doing some exercise in that environment as well. Pot plant will have a massive effect, much bigger effect than a pot plant, but have a pot plant, by all means have a pot plant. Spider, spider plant, those horrible things. A pet. A pet, yeah. Mm. Seriously, yeah. Even just goldfish, really. And it's, but yeah. well, my, my question really is: Would you actually have that conversation with a patient as part of uh, a treatment? Uh, no, I must confess, I probably wouldn't uh, routinely, mm. but I probably probably should. Ah, uh, well, think think yeah. about it. Yeah. Uh, well, having said that, occupational therapists do get involved with trauma victims and get them gardening. That right. is a project in North London which does exactly that. Mm. it's a non-threatening kind of activity that people can do together yeah and, it, and um, it's renowned it's it's well known to be awful and <laughs> it's well known to be effective actually <laughs> in reducing their levels of anxiety and enabling them to open up about their trauma right it, good gardening is very therapeutic everyone should get out and garden well i i accept i accept that it is it is creative and growing things is like oh wow i grew something and there's as in this digital world, which I love, don't get me wrong, I, I, I with my boy, I, um, I developed a black and white film, for example. Right. Something that you've never needed to do, even since Boots processed your photos. And it was lovely, just seeing something analogue happen, even with chemicals, just in front of your face. Mm. The, uh, mm. You're looking a bit confused. You're going to go a bit off point. <laughs> well, no, the point was, you were doing something with your hands. Uh, oh, I see. created something yeah and uh, you were part of a process that yeah yeah natural. yeah okay. i don't know why i use photography which is completely yeah which is natural yeah. and indoors um <laughs> uh, but yeah <laughs> and not yeah. Really with and, and consider if you're gonna if you want to exercise get your obviously you should be exercising three times a week to optimize your mood and so on right yeah, yeah. but consider doing that outdoors rather than inside a gym do it in a natural environment in a green environment yeah Hmm. I like what you say. Or if it's a summer, go and swim in a river or a lake, preferably one that's not polluted. Right. Ooh, swimming in a 
secluded lake. Um, no, there was a study that showed that actually, if you live by the sea, uh, once you've corrected for deprivation levels and age, your physical health is better. Nursing homes are built near the coast, which would skew your figures. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, you've got to do that. Well, that, that's quite good. I don't think I've got anything else, really. Shall we summarise? Uh, yes. I'll or try, or do you, do you how, try. How confident do you feel about summarising? Not very, other than to say, nice segue, that we should take into account the fact that we are part of what you called the biosphere, which is a, a known term, obviously, and therefore it's not surprising to find that we get comfort and a, a place of well-being from being placed in a natural environment. And that is not just necessarily with living things, it can be with uh, non-living things as well such as water fountains. I better put that in or else you'll just leap on me. Uh, and that <laughs> can be a very important part of um, our, 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 our method of increasing our well-being. And I think that we should be aware that some of the conveniences of modern living, such as living in a city and living in a, uh, a warm, uh, well-insulated house, can sort of go against the fact that we need to be part, we are part of nature and we need to uh, almost refresh our batteries by being part of nature. Uh, as much as we can yeah and there seems to be some evidence to support the fact that it's um it's a very important factor in, w with our well-being yeah. i guess yeah i think taking e even if you're not lucky enough to have a, a ready access to nature where you live in the city and you don't have a garden perhaps or you don't have views that of nature then build into your routine uh visiting a park yes. or a natural environment and exercise in a natural environment is much more therapeutic in terms of stress busting and reducing anxiety levels and increasing creativity and uh, clarity of thought than uh, exercising in a gym. Yeah, very good. And also, okay. if you're exposed to a water feature, make sure it's not too massive. Uh, yeah, please, please engage with water, but don't maybe don't just jump into the open sea. Engage with water. That could have been the title of your book. Well, it's, it is it's amazing how how therapeutic water is. Even just a small amount of water. I've, anyway, I've spent many hours trying to get our fountain in our garden working, and when it does, it's much more complicated than you think getting it working. Particularly when you're a bit. I don't, of I don't care. Are you right. No. Goodbye. Anyway, without without sounding like massive hippies, go out and engage with nature, man. Yep. Um, and uh, we would like to, I think, round off in the usual way, I which is do visit ytlf.com. That's whytlf.com. Uh, email us hi at ytlf.com. And our Twitter, Facebook and Instagram handles are all ytlf. Tweet, email, interact on the, on the Facebook forum and we'd love to hear from you. And if you fancy a good read, it's Headspace, colon, The Psychology of City Living. By Dr. P. Keedwell with loads of letters after his name, <laughs> Yawn. <laughs> Please do uh, go to wherever you get your podcasts and give us a nice rating. That would be much appreciated. Yeah, man. See you next time. Take Bye. it easy.